And so I'm just really interested in thinking about the narratives we tell about ourselves, about our place on this planet, and how we can better understand people towards better understanding the problems we face. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is the hardworking scientist who, if she could live on a planet that could decide how many hours there were in a day, she would be on a planet with a 48-hour day, and that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. Yes, I would. And you know what? I don't know what that says about me. Like, I, Part of me is like, good job, Kaylee. You've got so much to do. You want more hours in the day. And then part of me is like, Kaylee, sleep. <laughs> like, Please sleep. <laughs> A reasonable amount of hours. What would your planet look like, Michael? How many hours of sleep to uh, awake working ratio would you have? Well, you know what? I think I would kind of like one of these tidally locked planets. Now, a tidally locked planet would mean one side would always be in the daylight and the other uh -huh. side would always be in the evening. So, you know, if I wanted to go look at the stars at any point during the day, I could just like go and travel to the other side of the planet and just be like, now I'm in stars. You know what? Now I want to go play some baseball. So let's go on over to the other side and go to the daytime planet. I think that would be my favorite planet. I really like that idea. I like the idea that you can choose when to engage with the light <laughs> and when to engage with like some, uh, some evening times. I feel like that's also would be good for self care. You just, you just know, and like into the light or into some, some repose. That sounds perfect. <laughs> repose. repose. I know along with wanting all these hours, like my lower back hurts and I'm aging rapidly, <laughs> whatever planet that I want. Ugh. Well, we're going we're gonna to shift gears here. We're going to be back on this planet. And today we're talking with Lauren Eckert, who is a conservation scientist and PhD candidate at the University of Victoria, where she's interested in studying the complex interface of society and ecology and how an understanding of where people intersect with the natural world can allow us to better coexist. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Hi, I'm fantastic now that we are up and working and recording. <laughs> Uh, I am also both wishing that I had access to sunlight whenever I wanted and uh, 48 hours to work for a reason I barely understand and don't know if it's healthy. <laughs> so I'm feeling great and, and re relating heavily to our intro today. Uh, I made a joke recently to somebody who talked about work-life balance and I was like, I'm just trying to get work-work balance. And then I kind <laughs> oh, of God. cried on the inside. No, <laughs> I was like, I that's... No, I don't know. What need are that. we doing? I know. Good, good mm. and bad life choices. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. speaking about good life choices, Lauren, you just returned from living in a sweet canvas tent for like I like forever, six months. What was uh, what was that all about? What were you up to? Speaking of good life choices was a fascinating choice for transition. <laughs> <laughs> really. I I I shouldn't say that. It was both a good and a bad life choice. So one of the facets, one of the lenses I think about when I think about conservation as a scientist for my PhD is conflict between people and wildlife, specifically people and black bears here in the Katet Regional Districts, so more commonly known as Powell River and the territories of the Tla'aman Nation, where I'm coming to you from tonight. And 
a multitude of factors led me to do that research based out of a canvas wall tent. Uh, the primary one being very short, short notice for when I was going to end up being able to do my research due to COVID. I was initially planning to start a year earlier, but obviously fieldwork was delayed just as many things in life were. And so my partner and I were on the lookout for rentals here in Power River, but it is a relatively small community with relatively few of those. And I had to be able to go for research on a moment's notice. And so we ended up in a canvas wall tent on a friend's beautiful, spacious rural property, which actually ended up quite a joy uh, to operate fieldwork from until about uh, October, that is, (laughs) when it got really cold and uncomfortable. Not a lot of insulation in a fabric house. Uh, So yeah, I'm very happy to be coming to you from a walled home with central heating for the winter now. That sounds lovely. And actually, I was living vicariously through you for a lot of the summer. And it (laughs) It was really fun in the summer. I was going to say, in retrospect, I haven't seen a lot of updates recently. So (laughs) maybe that's because of the cold. (laughs) It was in survival mode, purely survival mode. (laughs) So Lauren, speaking of life choices, you identify as a conservation scientist. So I don't know how many uh, cocktail parties there are there in Powell River. But if you were to go to a cocktail party, is this how you would identify yourself as a conservation scientist? Um, tell us a little bit about um, that title and what conservation scientist is. Sure, totally. So Kaylee, we were talking about long work days, and I feel like my work is so much a part of my identity that I'm more than happy to admit to identifying as a conservation scientist. Obviously, I'm a bunch of other things, you know, a human, a partner, a settler scientist. I'm I'm a non-Indigenous scientist working often in Indigenous territories and spaces. Uh, I bring all sorts of positionalities to my work as a conservation scientist. But to answer the question... Conservation scientist uh, sometimes feels like a very comfortable and non-committal word to use as a scientist with a tiny bit of an identity crisis. (laughs) And (laughs) I say that only because, and I feel a lot of conservation scientists feel this way, we uh, who work in the sphere of applied conservation often end up using as many tools as we could possibly need in the scientific realms to accomplish conservation goals or accomplish conservation research. And so that means I am in heavily in the social sciences, in the natural sciences, my background's in ecology, but more and more I'm pulled towards psychology, social sciences, human dimensions of, of conservation. And so, you know, I see conservation as this uniquely human endeavor that is about caring for and managing, protecting the natural world, which very much includes humans uh, and managing for human behavior for the benefit of both humans and non-human animals now and in the future. But that, as may be obvious, is a very expansive definition. And so conservation science means I get to bring all of these different disciplines and aspects of myself to the work and means I don't have to um, pigeonhole myself into any single discipline, which I am uh, a bit allergic to at this point in my career. So So you have lots of options to take the conversation in many different ways when you're in that cocktail party, you're a conservation scientist. Um, But then, you know, eventually, like we are here, you want, we want to talk about your work and what that looks like for you um, on a day-to-day basis. So what does conservation scientist look like for you? Sure. 
As a conservation scientist, I think about the deep-rooted conflicts that surround conservation endeavors. These projects we undertake as humans across values, cultures, borders to protect our environments often spark really challenging intractable conflict, whether that conflict be between groups of people, you know, stakeholders, between nations, indigenous nations, and colonial nation states, uh, between humans and wildlife, as I mentioned. And we need to better understand people, to more deeply understand the roots of that conflict, and to better understand other species in order to overcome that conflict and make sure that our conservation endeavors are successful. And so in my PhD, I have a number of case studies, individual projects in which I look deeply into one type of conflict, mostly local to British Columbia and Canada, and try and look at that conflict from all dimensions, social dimensions, natural dimensions, psychology dimensions, evolutionary dimensions, you know, decolonial perspectives and dimensions to try and unpack them and move towards solutions. Yeah. And actually, as you were talking, this resonated with me a lot because when I did my PhD, I looked at urban rats and like health risks and sort of two took a lateral approach. Like I was in interdisciplinary studies and it definitely ended up being like, how do people feel about this problem? How do we think about how things interact? And one thing that I don't know if this resonates with you, but for me, I found like often feeling like I didn't have the expertise maybe to do any one thing well. Do you ever face that in this? Oh, you're speaking to my heart so profoundly. I mean, I think I hesitate now to use the term imposter syndrome because I don't know if it really exists or if we should call it that. But I, and, and this may be the case, especially for women in the field and, and research shows also for visible minorities in fields, um, which I am not, that this feeling of lack of expertise is really more prominent in women. But my God, interdisciplinary science, I promise you, will make you feel like you don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, so this is something I grapple with a lot. And it is... It's a really double-edged sword because I think one of my greatest joys in my PhD is getting to like piece together all of these corners of a problem, right? To to apply pieces of these different angles in part because of the grace and generosity of experts in those arenas mm -hmm. towards solving these really tricky problems and in some ways conservation and understanding for instance, you know, urban wildlife, whether rats or bears, requires looking at it from all these angles because you can't understand human-wildlife relationships without understanding the very complicated human piece of things. But, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, for the chapter of my PhD, so the piece of the project of my PhD that includes looking at black bear and human conflict. I'm, you know, attempting to get sort of ecology, wildlife camera trap in the mix, human values research, human uh, behavior research. I'm trying to find proxies, uh, estimations of that behavior that I can study. There are so many pieces of which would take lifetimes to be experts in, and I have this window of a PhD to try and pull it all together. So I have a perpetual feeling of having no idea what I'm talking about, that I'm constantly <laughs> fighting. Um, but I think still wouldn't do it any other way. Like I, I feel really lucky to get to 
peer through multiple lenses to do this research. And there's a trade-off, like I don't get to spend as much time in any one of them, but uh, it's a fulfilling way to do research, even though it comes with the baggage of constantly feeling like an imposter. <laughs> so thinking about how science does tend to be siloed, I mean, even within the field of ecology or conservation, right, up until now, mm-hmm. we've really focused on one particular species at a time or what people are doing, one behavior that they have. And and you're really focused on the interactions or what we call the socio-ecological landscape, right, of, of science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why does that approach interest you? Like, why do you think that that's a valuable approach to conservation science? That's such a good question. I, I like asking those questions about how I got to where I got to because something I think about a lot um, – and this is also informed by uh, Indigenous knowledge systems and praxis, is that we have to do better at considering ourselves in our in our science. Obviously, mm-hmm. we have all of these methods in a Western science framework to avoid bias in our research, and those methods work really well. But that doesn't mean that we as humans aren't biased. There are things that lead us towards the pathways we're on. And I think... I I think from a really, really, really young age, I was transfixed with animals. Viewers won't be able to, or listeners won't be able to see this, but behind me, <laughs> I have I have two dogs despite a lifestyle that barely allows it. But animals, non-human animals have always been so incredibly important to me. <laughs> Until I was um, nine years old, I uh, rarely accepted the fact that I was indeed a human animal and would play pretend to be just about anything else. (laughs) I think I had my parents quite worried. Um, So this this interest in the relationship between humans and non-human animals has always been there for me. And then I think that interest sort of um, motivated me towards conservation sciences because I cared deeply about wildlife and non-human animals. And interestingly enough, conservation sciences motivated me towards an interdisciplinary world because I first approached conservation with this idea that we just needed more data Mm -hmm. on wildlife. Like the reason we we weren't making the right decisions about conservation broadly, and this was far before I had any insight into like colonial systems or anything like that, was that we needed more ecology data and that would fix the problem. And of course, as I'm sure you've experienced, (laughs) turns out that we actually live in this really complex world where humans are making all of these complicated decisions and we need insight into people. Mm -hmm. We are by some accounts, certainly not all, uh, a a dominant force on this planet, though there are many other species that far outnumber us in (laughs) biomass and quantity. And and so I'm just really interested in thinking about the narratives we tell about ourselves, about our place on this planet, uh, whether in Western culture or in other cultures, and how we can better understand people towards better understanding the problems we face towards solving them, which is a huge problem that I will not fix. But (laughs) yeah, that like that interest in wildlife turned into interest in science, turned into interest in social sciences, because that interplay between people and everything else is the keystone of conservation. So totally. a winding answer, but perhaps to a, a winding question. <laughs> well, I love this winding path that you're taking us on here, Lauren. It's such a big field. Like well, now that we talk about conservation <laughs> science, we're talking about 
all of biology. We're talking about humanity, society, yeah. and all of the interweaving intersections <laughs> of it all. And you just said, you know, here's something that you can't solve. So let's let's try to boil this down. And I'd love to hear from your perspective of the things that you would love to try to solve. If there is something within this field that you're working on, that you're thinking about some idea that you would love to get into. I like going in this direction because we can spiral out to the broad scale <laughs> of, I think, any science and get to like a global species-wide level. But uh, my hope comes from working on the more local levels, on on things that we can see changes in over time, or I can see changes in over time. And I love applied conservation science for that. So in my PhD specifically, I'm really hopeful that by focusing on a couple smaller scale conflicts, I can provide really valuable information to policymakers and to folks involved in those conflicts in terms of how to begin transforming those conflicts into coexistence opportunities. So I'll I'll give two examples, maybe three, maybe three examples and keep them short. You do you. <laughs> so the first example of of one thing we can all think about individually, perhaps as as listeners or as humans in Canada, is conflict between Indigenous knowledge systems and Canada's colonial nation states knowledge systems. So for part of my PhD, as I began to think about conflict, I looked at the conflicts that live between these different knowledge systems that inhabit this one landscape now called Canada. And we see these conflicts come up a lot in, especially in environmental decision-making spaces. So if we think about the coastal gas link, Wet'suwet'en conflict that's occurring right now, we find that different value systems, different knowledge systems, different legal systems, different governance systems that coexist in Canada result in very, very different decisions when it comes to something like large-scale industrial projects. And as Canadians, I think especially settler Canadians, you know, it's our responsibility to consider the deep roots of the conflict that often occurs between some Indigenous nations and our colonial nation-state government of Canada, and to consider our, our own responsibility in assessing the the benefits we have been born into due to violent colonization and continue to benefit from. And so when we see Canada making environmental assessment decisions that impact Indigenous nations in different ways, it's important to consider the conflict that arises from those decisions, not just through the framework of reactive conflict, but think deeply about things like historical colonization and also values differences that arise. And that is not a, a project I'll be able to solve, but something we can all contribute to when we vote and when we talk to friends about these issues, that these are really deep-rooted conflicts issues, not based in you know, um, reaction, but instead based in fundamental value differences between nations. Two sort of more historically proximate conflicts that I'm I'm looking at and hope to contribute solutions to are conflicts between stakeholder groups. So you may be familiar with southern resident killer whales in the Salish Sea, so along, you know, the west coast of Canada. And they are a species of concern and a really cool species. I could talk forever about how cool southern resident killer whales are. But they also have faced, you know, environmental degradation and their numbers have been dwindling. 
Unfortunately, or fortunately, southern resident killer whales depend primarily on salmon for survival. And people also depend on salmon for happiness and survival and sustenance. And so conflict has happened in a big way in my community um, between anglers, recreational fishers, and between folks who want to support the conservation of southern resident killer whales sort of by excluding fishing of salmon. And so as part of my PhD, I'm surveying people on all sides of that conflict spectrum to try and understand the values they bring to the table when they engage in the conflict over the ways that we could possibly preserve southern resident killer whales by limiting salmon. Uh, And the goal of that is to try and find shared ground. So while people may have very different opinions about how best to manage killer whales and salmon, I expect to find that people involved in these conversations passionately and loudly share a lot of values about these species that call our marine habitats home. So that is underway right now, largely through social science means, surveys and conversations and Facebook comments to try and disentangle the values from what has been a pretty hot, high conflict situation where people are really at each other's throats here in British Columbia. And then the third place I am invested in is in the human black bear conflict landscape. And that is admittedly usually a very fun one because I get to learn a lot about local black bears and where they end up and why they end up there. And I also get to put cameras in people's yards (laughs) to understand how often (laughs) bears show up in their backyards. And beyond just looking at bears' behavior, I'm talking to people about their past experiences with bears, you know, their perceptions of bears, their fears about bears, their, you know, how they can assess how in control they are of bear-human interactions, their values when it comes to bears. All of this to say that my hope is that through the research with people here in my home community and understanding more about where bears are and why they're there, we can create sort of like a landscape of priority when it comes to identifying where conflict with bears is most likely to occur and what is most likely to drive that conflict. So that's one way to transform this situation to coexistence is to focus our efforts as researchers or as organizations who are working towards coexistence to say, this is where conflict is occurring. These are maybe the values that drive it or the behaviors that drive it from their or human sides. This is what we can do to solve it. I love that you brought up humans' perceptions of bears when you're when you're thinking about their interactions with them, not just like, you know, what's actually happening, but how humans are thinking about bears. And I think about when we tell stories of the stars and we think about different cultures, how there are bears in almost every culture's stories in the stars and how important they were in so many different cultures across the world, not just in North America, but in Europe and Asia. Um, it's fascinating. And, and bears to me have, have always been very fascinating. I'm curious about like your work and if you have any tips for any listeners out there that um, once we get back to summertime, they're going to be out there potentially interacting with these bears. Do you have any tips about uh, staying bear safe out there? 
Oh my gosh, so many. <laughs> and I'm really glad you brought up <laughs> humans' fascination with bears. It is one of my favorite parts about this research. And we share such an interesting niche with bears. We eat a lot of the same food bears do. So it makes sense that we Damn. would come into contact with them a lot. Like our ancestors yeah. ate what these bears' ancestors did. Um, just as a sidebar, because it's a super cool science fun fact. And then I will talk about bear safety. A colleague <laughs> of mine, uh, Dr. Lauren Henson, in collaboration with Jen Wakas and a number of uh, First Nations on the central, what is now called the Central Coast, their multi-year research project on genetic differences in grizzly bears and what is now called coastal British Columbia showed that there were three distinct genetic sort of families of grizzly bears in British Columbia. And Dr. Henson was looking for what in the landscape or historically or today might have caused that differentiation genetically. And the only surface she could find that overlaid geographically with those three genetic groups was indigenous language families. That is and the coolest. It speaks so powerfully to human and bear relationships that whatever drove differentiation in bears was the same thing that drove differentiation in the ancestors of the humans who still live on the coast today. So very, very cool relationship research. Yeah. No, I love it. So humans end up in conflict with bears, particularly black bears where I live, for a number of reasons. The number one reason, as far as we can tell, is attractants. So bears can smell better than your dog can smell, so much better than you can smell. <laughs> bears experience the world through their nose. And they can smell, in some cases, it appears up to 20 miles. So if we have stinky, delicious, high-calorie food in our yards or the remnants of it, bears are motivated to travel to find that food, especially late in the fall when they're getting ready to go to sleep and use their fat reserves to stay asleep for much of the winter. And so the number one thing you can do to avoid conflict with bears in, in your backyard is to manage those scent attractants. There are other attractants, but the smelly ones in my mind, are the most important to consider. Mm -hmm. That also means if you're camping, you got to be really careful about anything that can smell. Because if you're in remote places, those bears are out there. Like, they don't want conflict with you, but they're going to be excited about good smelling food. They also like novel smells. So even like peppermint type smells, like they're going to be like, oh, that's very interesting. I need to go check that out. They're curious, especially black bears. Uh, and always when you're in the backcountry, leash for dogs, pets often bring bear conflict by being curious and being animals and being freaked out by that dog that's 10 times the size of them. <laughs> and so leashing pets or having pets with really, really good recall is important when you're in bear country. And then all, I always carry around uh, and haven't had to use yet a number of things. So some sort of noise-making device, even if it's your own voice, I will yell, hey, bear, a lot when I'm out on a trail just to make sure I don't accidentally surprise a bear. That's kind of worst-case scenario for bear in person. You can bring, I don't normally bring because of potential problems, but something called bear bangers. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Oh. Basically, they are a device that you can fire long range that will make a very loud noise 
as they detonate very far away from you. They're like a pocket-held device. These can be very useful. The problem is people, if they're in a bear encounter and feel scared, will often aim them towards the bear. Oh, no, no, no. The, the device then flies behind the bear, fires behind the bear, the bear gets scared, and uh. then starts the person. So <laughs> bear bangers, oh, no. only if you have practiced using them appropriately, usually you fire behind yourself if you're trying to make a big loud noise. A great alternative is just like, you know, loud whistle, bell, or air horn. Uh, and then the last line of defense in avoiding conflict with theirs is bear spray. So this is sort of like a mace-based product you can buy at most outdoor stores like MEC. And there are a couple of caveats with bear spray. You do not spray it on yourself to repel bears. You'll have a real bad time. <laughs> yeah. um, if you do ever spray it, because it smells interesting, bears will come check it out. So don't like spray it on a rock to see if it works because it may actually bring bears to you. Uh, and there's research that shows bear spray is very, very effective if you've practiced using it. So normally at outdoor stores, they will sell like a, a practice version, a canister without the mace in it that you can practice with. And you basically spray in like an S shape upwards from the ground when the bear is within nine feet of you, if it's charging you. So this is sort of like last, last uh, hope, last line of defense. You don't want to have to use bear spray. Uh, but it is good to always carry with you because you never know what situation you're going to end up in. All of that said, <laughs> bears are very, very unlikely to want anything to do with people besides to duck out. And usually your voice will be enough to deter conflict with bears. But always bring backups. Shifting gears a little bit, one thing I would really love to ask you about is this other initiative that you've been involved in lately. So we were talking earlier about your work and how it hits on sort of broader issues and how a lot of this is linked to like colonialism. And mm -hmm. you've been involved with Hidden Compass, which looks at sort of redefining and reimagining words or concepts in science, yeah. sort of through a pr like a present day lens. And I really love that idea because I think, I mean, having gone through university in the early to mid 2000s, like so much of what I was taught in Western science is rooted in colonialism and these words we think of like mm -hmm. to discover, right? Or even like what is an expert? Like who do we consider to be an expert totally. or words that, words that we use all the time? Why do you think it's really important to have those conversations about the historical context of science? Gosh, you introduced that wonderfully. And I echo much of what you said about having experienced science in a very specific way that's obscured uh, its heavy history and violence and colonization and exclusion. And so I often feel like I still have so much to learn in this arena, particularly as a white person, particularly as a settler and non-Indigenous scholar. Um, I will always be in a position of learning in these spaces rather than leadership. But Hidden Compass, which is a, a women-led uh, online publication magazine, I highly recommend. Super cool work they're doing to sort of um, dig deep in a media landscape that often wants to uh, aim towards clickbait and superficiality. They've allowed me the opportunity to do this series on YouTube, mm -hmm. just talking to to all sorts of 
fantastic people about things like the heavy history of science and the words we continue to choose to use in sciences and journalism and beyond. And so I don't have any answers in this space. I feel like I keep saying that a lot in this conversation. Maybe that's what a PhD does to you. But I think it is so incredibly important to be talking with a diversity of humans about what we do with words like exploration or explorer that may we may have the opportunity to reclaim or we may have to leave behind because of their profoundly colonial and violent baggage. Um, and I'll direct people towards those interviews to check out different perspectives. But um, you know, a number of of indigenous folks, scholars, teachers have joined on that series and speak to that they don't think words like exploration and discover can be reclaimed because of the heaviness, the baggage that comes along with them. Um, and so I think as humans who care a lot about building new worlds, I think all scientists are inherently interested in that process of learning and unpacking and disentangling and for lack of better word, discovering we are in a really good and important position to consider the gravity of, of the word choices we use as we engage in these many different disciplines towards new things. I mean, words, words can exclude, words can invite, words can encourage. And so it's been really wonderful to have the opportunity of those conversations via Hidden Compass. And we talk about other things too, you know, like how we can escape our comfort zones to tell stories in new and better ways that are more honest and more diverse and uh, escape colonial Western paradigms and and how we can, you know, we talked about the interface and intersections a lot already so far, but that's something else I get to talk to a lot of cool researchers and storytellers about is how we can find these intersections of knowledges or disciplines or worldviews and find new things at, at those intersecting spaces. So that's been really fun. Well, this is amazing, Lauren. I don't know if you know, but uh, here uh, on Nerd About, we also set up uh, a camera that we put up out there, and uh, we just uh, spotted uh, something. Do you know what we've just spotted? No. The Nerd Herd. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon it's based? the fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the nerd herd questions, we post for them on our hidden camera. It's not a hidden camera. It's right out there on our social media at Nerd Night YVR, Twitter and Instagram. And our first question comes in from Promote, who asks, how do we define which creatures are endangered? Do we stop at species level or subspecies? It may be unanswerable. I mean, the whole construct of species uh, is at times questioned by folks in the scientific community. So endangered species categorizations depend a lot on country and systems for protection of endangered species. So I won't pretend to be an expert in Canadian or US, the two places I've spent most of my life, endangered species policies. Um, but endangered species categorizations usually depend on known number of, of animal left in the wild and human valuation of that animal, fortunately or unfortunately. This is more anecdotal than based on factual information. But one phenomena in Canada is that we have a lot of fish species that 
from perhaps an objective lens should be categorized as endangered in terms of the number of those animals left. Um, but because either they have commercial value or maybe they're not like particularly charismatic or sexy, they don't make it on endangered species lists. So certainly not claiming that endangered species lists aren't valuable. They are, they're important. They lead to, especially in the US with the Endangered Species Act, really important interventions that end up protecting entire ecosystems that house many important species beyond just the endangered species that the ecosystems are being protected for. Um, But they are fundamentally, you know, a, a human construct and so very imperfect in design and implementation. One of the things I often find really interesting in this space too is thinking about endangered species, but within the context of the species that we know, 100%. right? Like there's so many species that really are out there point. that have not been discovered. As somebody who used to take feather mites off of uh, birds and then look at their genitals, I spent a lot of time <laughs> recognizing that I had no idea what species that was no, because totally. it was just like wasn't identified, right? And so there's also this whole other scape. Again, yeah, it is a construct. We've created it, but it yeah. can be incredibly useful. And it is also political. Like yeah, it cannot because it is political. within the human space. Yeah, we just can't disentangle it. Perfect example of many intersections, like useful but really complicated. And yeah, like there are tons of species we can't see. Like we can't measure, we can't see, we can't, yeah. Well, I think we should find some more intersections. You want to uh, nerd out with us some more, Lauren? I would love that. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? All right. If you want to get in on the nerd outs, uh, we also post for them on our social media at NerdNightYVR. Our first one comes in from M, who is nerding out about ranunculus bulbs. I don't know if you, even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Ranunculus bulbs. <laughs> um, Kaylee, Lauren, can you help me out here? I like your pronunciation, whether it's right or not. <laughs> no, I love it. That's definitely it. You said it with confidence, and that is what it is now. Do you do you know what a ranunculus bulb is? I have no idea, but I'm excited to learn. I want you to know that I went and Wikipedia this, partly because one thing that we need to do better on the pod is doing that when we get these things, and instead of being like, ah, <laughs> uh. and like <laughs> the other, the other is that I've got a friend who's a botanist who I know will murder me oh, <laughs> if, fair, I, fair. if I didn't. So uh, let's see here. What did I find? What did I find? They're um, a group of over 600 species of flowering plants, and uh, they're in the family Ranunculaceae. Sorry, Tim. And uh, they are known as buttercups, spearworts, and water crowfoots. Ranunculus comes from Latin as little frog. Uh, probably because they're mostly found near water, which I thought was really interesting. Aww, and I found so out cute. that you'd think so. Many oh, no. species are poisonous <laughs> when you eat them fresh. <laughs> Bummer. Bummer. It's always the case, right? Yeah. Oh, so uh, don't eat them. Like if you're, but I think they're also used uh, from in, in medicinal ingredients uh, as well. But I did learn that, especially for livestock, it can be bad news bears. Yikes. Okay. So uh, that's it. That's what I learned. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I love learning. This is why we do this is why we do this because it's something we don't know about. We can dive in and learn more about. What about you, Lauren? What have you been nerding out about? Okay, I'm gonna have two answers. One is spur of the moment. And the first answer is that I often find myself nerding out about how little we know about everything. 
Like we can fall into this <laughs> general feeling of like, wow, in the, you know, the modern era, humans have so many tools to know so much, but we know like nothing. I just like mm-hmm. learned something very new about 600 species I know nothing about. So I personally know nothing <laughs> and humans know so little. So that always makes me nerd out a little bit in like a wonderful <laughs> existential crisis way. The other thing I'm nerding out about, so I've talked a lot about human-animal relationships and I just read an article in the conversation about humans relationship with their pets, which I obviously think about a lot as a dog mom. And it was literally about pet parenting. So like social research on people who have pets who they put a lot of their energy into. And the researchers were sort of asking the evolutionary question of like, why would human beings be so willing on such a grand scale to put so much money and effort and resources and time into animals of a different species. Mm -hmm. And the thesis of the researchers based on feedback from hundreds of people they interviewed and evolutionary theory about people is that we are a species that evolved to alloparent. So there is substantial evidence that Human beings, when we lived in small groups, the context in which our ancestors lived, we shared parenting responsibilities. So there was sort of like essentially group parenting over the young of individuals in a group. It was like a family of parents. Mm -hmm. And our ancestors would even do things like trade food for babysitters. Like we are not that different than our ancient ancestors are. We trade resources for other members of our group taking care of our kids. And mm-hmm. so we evolved because that was such a successful trait in our very social group. We evolved these instincts to parents, even those humans or things that aren't directly related to us because it behooved us to. It conferred all sorts of benefits, food, resources, probably fitness, like probably helped our ancestors' offspring. Anyway, so we parent our dogs like our kids because – as humans, like a core evolutionary trait is to take care of young things that aren't our own, which I think is like such, I mean, you know, we live in an era where a lot of messed up stuff is happening. Really? I don't know if you guys have heard. It's been a rough go. It's just nice to remember that some fundamental traits of humans, of our species, are to care for other living things at great cost, even if it doesn't benefit our, our fitness directly, and to cooperate. It's a nice reminder. And I'm nerding out about those being basic evolutionary traits that are very human. I love this. And it just made me feel so much better that I spend like $600 to get Gizmo's teeth cleaned. <laughs> because- <laughs> it's, it's your inheritance. Yeah. I can't get rid of it. It's in my DNA. And also, yeah. like, this is kind of the level of parenting I'm chill with. Like, this is <laughs> this is great. She's sleeping in the chair right now. Perfect. I'm going to send you this article because it basically says like, wow, people aren't having babies, but they have dogs, so it's fine. We could have a whole other podcast about that. (laughs) That would just be me unpacking. (laughs) Count me in. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Michael, what are you uh, caring for these days? What's on your nerd out? Mm, Well, what am I caring for these days? I'm caring a lot for our fellow science communicators. Mm -hmm. I think about science communication a lot, of course, in our work with uh, SciCats. And to give you a window into kind of like what my day was like 
today. So, you know, I get a call from past guest Joanna Wagstaff, who is the on-air meteorologist, seismologist, and scientist for CBC. Amazing. Go follow her on social media. Uh, So she calls because she has a new sort of science roundup segment she does on CBC, and she wanted to talk about this new comet that's uh, zipping by the Earth, uh, Comet Leonard, which is such an old, great old man name for a comet, uh, especially for one that's on a (laughs) 80,000 year orbital period. (laughs) But the thing is, like, she's you know, she's such a bright and positive uh, science communicator. But if you've been following, you know, what she's been up to the past couple months, mm. I mean, it's been atmospheric river, it's been floods, um, mm. it's been, mm-hmm. you know, dire climate change, you know, stories that she's been having to tell. And honestly, like she called me and she's like, look, I just want to do something light and fun, which I was like, <laughs> is that a compliment? But then like, lo and behold, I learned about this movie that's coming out, Don't Look Up, it's actually in theaters right oh, yeah. now. Uh, this will come out um, later on. I haven't seen it yet, but this is a movie about science communicators because there is a comet that is heading towards Earth, and it's a comedy that's written um, by Adam McKay um, about how the scientists communicate that with the public. Uh, and I found that that was such oh, so apropos gosh. for today to like think about that in today's climate and of course you know at some point you know i may be called upon to talk about these real dire uh, things that are going to have everyday impact on our lives hopefully not um but it could happen um so listen we're going into 2022 <laughs> anything's on the table um but the other real cool thing about this movie is that i did a little research is that it actually did uh, involve a lot of real um scientists in the making of it amy Meinzer. Who's one of my planet, uh, my favorite planetary scientists? So everyone's homework uh, for next podcast is to go watch. Don't look up. I'll watch it. I'll get my ticket right now, and then I'll do a review. My next nerd out. Amazing, uh, Kaylee. Uh, what about you? What are you uh, running out to uh, go nerd out about these days? Wow, that was what a what a segue. I. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> as uh, Lauren just said, who knows what twenty twenty two will bring. Um, You know, the world, the last year has been, to be frank, a trash fire. (laughs) And, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, we're coming to the end of the year. This is going to come out in the new year. But I wanted to reflect on something that has brought me some joy and also has sort of a human wildlife, sometimes human animal conflict, uh, which is something that I've been doing the last year. So I've been reconnecting with horseback riding (laughs) and have been loving it. Oh, my God, amazing. the best. I ride once a week on a little horse named Trig, and she is the sweetest. And I've been really enjoying that because it's one day a week that I am outside. Sometimes that's less enjoyable than other days. And Trig does not like a puddle. So that's where some of the conflict comes in. What horse likes a puddle? Very few in my <laughs> experience. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just been it's just been really fun. And one thing that I've sort of realized lately too is like when I was doing my PhD and just out of my PhD, I had a lot of anxiety and I also found that I was forgetting things a lot. And I realized that part of it was that I was never fully paying attention to one thing. Like uh-huh. I was always thinking about something else, which made me feel better about the fact that I couldn't remember anything. But I think one of the things that I love about horseback riding is I actually don't have an option to not be thinking about horseback riding while I'm horseback riding totally. because she'll take my leg into the fence. Like she will do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
because she wants to stop going. And so- Or drop you into a puddle, oh, for sure. Because she hates that puddle. Yeah. So that's one nice thing that has come out of 2021 for me. Kaylee, this whole um, explanation of why horseback riding, um, you know, being very, you know, mental and having to focus in on it. And it's so beautiful because these majestic horses, mm -hmm. that exact explanation I heard from someone is why they um, ride a unicycle. Oh, really? Full body focus. Because if you're riding a, a unicycle, like you've got to be concentrating All of it, um, yeah. or you're falling off that thing. Yeah. And you definitely got to be concentrating on looking cool. I've never <laughs> seen anybody go by who isn't concentrating on looking cool. <laughs> Do they look cool though? Well, um, that is the ultimate question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Nerdin' About. If people want to learn more about you, your YouTube channel, your podcast, all of the things that you do, where can people go? So I, you can find me, most of my links at laureneckertconservation.com. That's E-C-K-E-R-T. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Lauren E. Eckert. And Hidden Compass is where you will find uh, the YouTube channel and other links to their magazine. And yeah, you can find me at The Witch Podcast as well because I do too many things. Uh, <laughs> and that is just at The Witch Podcast on Instagram and Twitter and yeah, on all streaming platforms. Yeah, you have so many options. Choose your <laughs> Lauren Eckert <laughs> adventure. <laughs> you have so many options. Well, thank you so much. This was, this was a joy. We'll put all of those in the show notes and um, a shout out to everybody for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Nerd Night YVR. This episode was hosted by us, edited by me and mixed by Elise Lane. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, bring a camera and make some noise. <laughs>